pastor wanted me to continue on the subject of Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council, and then also talk about uh, the book of Galatians a little bit and how they kind of connect to each other. It's a fascinating uh, little account that Paul gives us, and it's extremely important for us in terms of establishing the early eyewitness testimony of the Gospels. Some of the earliest testimony um, from the, uh, the early church that even skeptics will allow for you comes from Paul. And I mentioned that the last time that I talked a little bit. I'm going to give you even some more details on that based on this Acts 15 council and then some of the stuff that happens in Galatians 1 and 2. There's some interesting things that Paul tells us about the history of the early church in this. And so to kind of recap a little bit on a timeline. So if we're starting here, I'm just going to do my little bad timeline as the history teacher. If we say this is ground zero, so this is 30 A.D., and again, some people will say 33 A.D. for Jesus. It depends on how you count the Passovers and you count who's ruling when and that sort of thing. But most will say either 30 to 33 A.D. is ground zero. And if you go all the way down here and you put about 95 A.D., these are secular dates. I want to make sure that, I, that you know this. This is the Gospel of John. Okay, so again, these are secular dates. We can, we, I would argue for earlier dates in some of these, and many evangelical and Catholic scholars and others will advocate for earlier dates. I'm just giving you the historical secular dates about these things and when these were supposedly written down and accepted by the scholarly community, so to speak. So could John really be in the 80s AD? The answer is yes, he could be. But the consensus for secular scholarship right now is 95 AD. So let's just go with that. So if you do this, just little math here, this is plus 65 after the event. So in the ancient world, that's not too bad, and I'll explain that in a second. And I've done it before, but I want to kind of graph this out for you. So this 30 to 33 AD, most people have Paul's conversion, and a pastor said, was this really a conversion, or is it more of a, a repurposing? You know, we can talk about that a little bit, because he's not leaving Judaism. He's now completed, right? And the Messiah has come. So he's not really he's converted, but he kind of is. That we, we had the discussion. Most people date that somewhere in here, it's about 32, 33 A.D. You'll have plus 1, plus 2, plus 3. I'll put, put converted just because that's the, uh, I guess, the traditional way of saying it, even though we, with that proviso that it may not be an actual conversion. So that's somewhere in here, okay? Now, most people date 1 Corinthians somewhere in here. I'm going to say 53 to 55 A.D. That'll be 1 Corinthians. And then the book of Galatians is somewhere in here, 51 to 53. So let's kind of draw my ear up. This is Galatians. Okay, now, if you think about this, if here we're about plus 25, okay, and here we're plus 20 or 21 or something like that, let's just say 22, okay, plus 22, now we've got some pretty good sources here, if you think about it from a historical standpoint. This is early, the eyewitnesses are still alive, and Paul is writing, and Galatians, nobody doubts, is written by Paul. There are no debates. Almost every scholar that has a PhD terminal in his field, meaning they have a PhD in, like, say, classical studies or New Testament literature or the Greco-Roman world or ancient history, whatever it is, they're going to grant that Paul wrote Galatians, and most people date Galatians into the early 50s AD. So if you weren't clear about that, that's how early this is. The only other book of the Bible that might be as early as Galatians is James, uh, the half-brother of the Lord, or the cousin of the Lord. That word bro the word brother there could be in either. So talk to Pastor Daniel, he'll say it. Jesus and Mary had a god of kids. That's it. And that'll be the words that he works on. Uh, Roman Catholics and other groups will say that he's a distant family member because Mary never actually had any other kids. It's the whole, doesn't matter, the answer is really no. Okay, um, But that is a debate, the perpetual virginity of Mary. And actually Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley all actually held to the perpetual virginity of Mary. I don't know if you know that. Um, but they all did. Um, but it wasn't until the 18, 1900s when we started looking 
looking at Jewish law and a little bit more and starting contextualizing Jesus and those sort of things were like, well, there's really no problem if they did either, right? And the, it says Jesus' brothers, and so is that his, and they're with his mom, so maybe they're actually his half-brothers, you know, via Joseph. But it's true that that word for brother can also mean other family members. So just as, a, as an aside, it's a pious opinion is the way we say it. It's not like a fundamental of the faith either way, whichever your pious opinion is. So anyways, James is written somewhere back here, late 40s, early 50s. So depending on who you talk to, either Galatians is the earliest book or the book of James is the earliest book of the New Testament. It's one or the other. Okay, And so you can see how early this is. And Paul gives us some data as to what happens. Now this Jerusalem council that people will date is somewhere about here. And that's in Acts 15. So we'll call this Acts 15. And that's about here, and I'll just say 48 AD, okay? Now, again, it's not all to scale or whatever. I'm just kind of shorthanding this. But the Jerusalem Council is dated to somewhere around 48 AD. So here, we're now plus 18 from the events, okay? And, of course, in order for them to have a council about this dispute, about Gentile believers entering the church, then that means all that activity is happening even earlier, right? And there's a lot of information before Acts 15, so we're filling in basically all the stuff between Acts 1, 10, 11, 12, all that's kind of happening in this little window here. And so Paul in Galatians is going to give us some background on to when he actually has a dispute with Peter, and it has to do with the Judaizers, and we'll talk about that in a second. But he has this dispute, and it's fascinating because Paul gives us some autobiographical um, information about things. So if he's converted in 32 to 33 AD, somewhere in that ballpark, do all of you remember where he goes next? Does he go and start evangelizing right away? Where does he go? He goes to Arabia. He goes to the desert, right? And so let's just say 35 AD, and I'll just make it small here, is the desert. So we've eliminated. Now look how close we are now between the Jerusalem Council and when he comes out of the desert. We're about 13 years, maybe 12. Again, these aren't exact days. These are estimates. We have Paul doing his ministry and checking in with the apostles probably twice, maybe three times, two or three times between these dates. Now, why does this matter? Well, in places like 1 Corinthians or in the book of Philippians and other places, Paul continually says this phrase. I don't know if you've heard him say this before. For what I received, I passed on to you. Have you ever heard him say that before? Like if you read 1 Corinthians 15. That is the way that goes with the resurrection appearances. For what I received, I pass unto you, that our Lord Jesus Christ, he died and he was buried according to the scriptures, and on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures, and there's this rhythm there, and then he appeared to the twelve, Peter, and then he appeared to the twelve, and the five hundred brothers at one time, and you get a list of resurrection appearances. Okay? And so if he says, and he writes 1 Corinthians here, for what I received, I passed on to you, when did he get that information? Well, looking at this timeline then, and looking at what we're going to look at in just a second in Galatians, I would contend, and I'm not the only one that does this, there are many uh, scholars that would contend this, Gary Habermas being the most famous one who's a resurrection apologist, but somewhere in this window is when he gets that creedal material. Would that make sense to you? Because he says, I've received it, I've checked this out, pass it on to you, and this is the fundamental of our faith. I've checked this out. Well, somewhere in here, he would have had to have been able to check that out. So now we're plus 5, plus at latest, plus 18 from the events. But there are some scholars that think it might be even earlier than that. Because if when he checks out his gospel, after spending time in Arabia, 35 AD, he gets this creed, that would mean that that creed goes back to right on top of the events themselves. There's a scholar in England named Richard Bauckham. He wrote a famous book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Um, and it's actually talking about the Gospels. But he mentions this creed, this creedal material that we have in Paul. 
And in this creedal material, Richard Bauckham, who is, again, he's not some raging conservative fundamentalist. He's a kind of a standard scholar. He's very well respected in, in this literature. He actually says that Paul may have gotten that creed, or that creed may have been created. That's the way to say it. That creed may have been created or in its final form about six months after the death and res resurrection of Jesus. Huh. Okay, now, what's amazing about this is people sometimes say, well, you know, the early church just kind of developed legends about Jesus. You know, as time progressed, you know, we kind of added these traditions that he rose from the dead or that he ascended or that he, ro he rose Lazarus from the dead or he performed the feeding of the 5,000. These are legendary things that have accrued through time. The problem with that is, is even with these dates, there's not enough time for legend to develop, right? There's just not enough time in the ancient world. It's not like you can create some fantasy, disseminate it, and have everybody believe it. All the eyewitnesses are still alive. Well, not all of them, but a good portion of the eyewitnesses are still around. So if you're just blowing smoke, they're going to call you out on it. You can't really start developing legends until this, this late, if not later, when some of the original eyewitnesses that were children or the, uh, the sons of the eyewitnesses and the daughters of the eyewitnesses, once they die out, well, then maybe you can start developing some legends. Okay, so maybe as late as John, you could make the argument okay, that you might start having legendary material. But look at our dates here. There's no way we could have legendary material yet. So this stuff is genuine apostolic eyewitness tradition that Paul is reporting in his letters. And so Galatians, so, so Acts 15, just to recap, I want to give you a little bit of, a, of, of some background, and then Paul is going to fill us in behind the scenes. It's kind of like having, so you get the official meeting notes in Acts 15, and then you get the background information from Paul. So you guys know how that works, right? Like a Congress, there's like this official thing in Congress. This is our law, and we pass this resolution, but nobody talks about what happened behind the closed door committee meetings. Okay, because nobody wants to, because everybody got mad at each other and yelled at each other, or they had to, nobody wants to see all the sausages made, you know, that sort of thing. Paul gives us that in Galatians 1 and 2, kind of how the, so if you go, if you're following along, go to Galatians 1 and 2. So here we go. So I'm going to start in verse 18. Okay, actually not for 18, 17. Okay, so I'm going to go and then we'll pick it up. So he says, He would set me apart before I was born, reveal his son. I did not immediately, immediately consult with anyone. That's the end of 16, okay? Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Remember, up to Jerusalem means, because Jerusalem's the Temple Mount. We've talked about that before, right? Because he would have been, originally been in Damascus. Look what it says. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to visit Kephas, or Cephas, that's Peter, okay, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Could you imagine that conversation? Peter, James, and Paul? How would you like to be in on those inter those interactions for 15 days? Those are probably some pretty good pretty good moments, right? And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea who are in Christ. They only were hearing it and said, He who used to persecute us now is preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified because of me. Now here we go. Then after 14 years, there we go, we got the phone going here. Uh, we went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. Remember, he's been with Barnabas. That's what Acts has given us. So we think this is the Jerusalem council that Paul's talking about. 14 years. So you get Arabia. I have 48 here, but you get the rough estimates. Can you see why we'd probably date the council somewhere in this range? See that, right? Okay. 
So then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. It's, if Paul's plus two, it would be exactly 48, actually. Um, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, although privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain. That's crazy. Think about what he's saying. I've spent for 14 years, committed my life, and now I'm going to go double-check it again? Isn't that kind of interesting? He's basically saying that 14 years later, I'm going to check out this gospel again. Why is this significant? Because when Paul says, for what I've received, I've passed on to you, you can tell he's taking amazing care to try to say, is this creed, is this ham, is this statement that I'm writing in Galatians or Philippians or Corinthians or wherever it is, I'm taking absolute care to check it out. Not only did I check it out back here after I spent my time in Arabia, but I'm going to check it out again when we're here for the Jerusalem Council. That's amazing that he's actually that. He's I'm talking about humility. I've been preaching for 14 years. I come back and I just make sure that the apostles aren't going to disagree with me there. It's just, just a fascinating moment. I want to make sure that I didn't run in vain. Okay. Then, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Which is interesting, right? Which is actually what it says in Acts 15. Because in Acts 15, the Greeks were not commanded to be circumcised. It was abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, right? And from blood and those sort of things that have to do with pagan sacrifices. And then it says, and abstain from sexual immorality. That's all they say. In other words, behave yourself. Don't participate in pagan religions. And that's all you have to do to join the faith. You don't have to be circumcised. So it starts off like you would think from the Acts 15 Council. Yet, here we go. Listen, listen to what happens. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed influential... What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Here we go. Those five words, I'm going to sum that up, five words. They added nothing to me. So Paul has been preaching this effectively for 14 years. Why does this matter and why do we date that cradle material earlier? Think about it. If they've added nothing to me, that means he got the information before because that wouldn't make any sense because they, they didn't give him anything new, right? You see the logic here? And so if they added nothing to me then, then when did he get that creedal material? Well, after those two or three years in after those two or three years in Arabia, he got that creedal material. And if for it to be in creedal form, it had to have been already developed and put in that in that memorization style form before that. So guess where we're at? Right on top of the events. You see how that logic works? Following Paul. And so we have Paul, we have creedal material from 1 Corinthians 15, we have a hymn in Philippians 2, and a variety of other things that we have in actual historical data that again i can't emphasize that enough even secular scholars will grant you that you have to deal with because what do we have in this creedal material we have a death we have a burial when we have a resurrection in philippians 2 in the hymn we have every knee shall bow and every tongue confess right that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father so we have a high christology that jesus is god we have the resurrection we have the crucifixion all in creedal or hymn form right on top of the events so my question is then, and this is my kind of, this is where I'm the apologist a little bit here, is if this is true, if we have this material on top of the events and we have this good of eyewitness testimony, what are you going to do with that now? If you're, an if you're interpreting history, what did they see as the disciples? You see what I'm saying? We call this, and for those who have, I don't see any of my students in here, right? We call this, what, what this is called is called minimal facts. This is called the minimal facts approach to the Christian faith. And Paul 
is a huge source for these minimal facts. I'm going to show you really quickly. You're going to get a taste. So, Rodriguez, is now you know what your dad has been putting up with here. Okay? You just get this for a second. Okay? There are five facts that scholars will grant, mostly from Paul, that's why I'm doing this right now, about Jesus that comes from this creedal material. That, again, nobody doubts. 90%, when I say, when I say scholars grant, it's, it's not... 100%. It's 99% or 96% of scholars. Does that make sense? We'll grant these minimal facts. So here's the facts that they'll grant. They'll grant the crucifixion. They'll grant the disciples. The disciples saw something. Okay. They'll grant that Paul, who's the best source, converts. They'll grant James, who was skeptical before, is there. And then the empty tomb. And on this one, it's more like 75% of scholars. So I'll sometimes call this 4 plus 1. But about 75% will grant the empty tomb. So I'm making a case for you here. If scholars will grant these minimal facts, and we know that Paul is getting these minimal facts within the 30s AD when he reports them in Galatians and in 1 <coughs> Corinthians and in Philippians, in the letters that even scholars, I'm using their data, okay, even in their data, We've got a problem here because now you have to somehow explain what the disciples saw. Why did Paul convert or have his Damascus Road experience? If it's not a conversion, his completion experience, if you want to call it that. Why does Paul convert? Why does James become the pastor or bishop of the Jerusalem church when he was skeptical before? Why are the, why are the Jews saying that the disciples stole the body? Because by saying that, they're admitting the tomb's empty. Get why I'm saying that? Okay, so you have an empty tomb. You have two people who are not predisposed to believe all of a sudden being leaders in the church. You have the disciples running around saying they saw the risen Jesus, and everybody knows that Jesus died by crucifixion. You put all those things together, put all that data together, and in my contention, he's raised. Because there's no other good explanation. Try explaining those away in a complete naturalistic theory. Well, the disciples suffered a mass grief hallucination. I mean, I'm serious. That's, that's, you have to go that route. Or Paul had a sort of conversion disorder, kind of a reverse Stockholm Syndrome. You know, Stockholm Syndrome is when like a, a, somebody falls in love with their captors. In this way, he's, he kind of sympathizes so deeply with the people he's been persecuted that he joins them. Okay? And then James, it was like family guilt, right? Because he was brother, that sort of thing. <laughs> the empty tomb, you got to try it. Maybe they went to the wrong tomb. Maybe somebody actually did steal the body. But I mean, the, the point is, is to explain these, these data away, you have to come up with some really implausible, highly unlikely theories. And the more of them that you have to come up with them, the more unlikely it is. This is some of those of you who know math. When you add odds or when you add probabilities, it doesn't get more likely, right? Let's just say it's a 1 in 10,000 chance that one of these happens. But now another thing has to happen too. So now you have a 1 in 100,000 chance. You get what I'm saying? So you're adding probability as we go. And so in this case, to explain all this data from eyewitness testimony in the 30s AD, I think, I think he's raised. I mean, I think, I think from a historical standpoint, Pastor Dinger will say this about this. And I, and I, I want to communicate this to you because I 100% back him on this one. And that's whenever I have doubts or whenever I'm not sure about things, or there's something in, passage, in scripture that I'm not sure of, all I have to do is look at this and say, he rose from the dead. In history. This is not like, we don't have to say long ago and far away there was a man named Jesus, as I like to say. This is based on real historical data that's out there. And what Gary Habermas, if you don't know that name, I'll spell him up here. This comes from, he's a scholar, he's got his PhD from Michigan State. His name's Gary Habermas. Um, 
he has a website, it's just GaryHabermas.com, but he goes through a lot of this data, and if you can YouTube him, you can YouTube Gary Habermas Resurrection, or Gary Habermas Minimal Facts, and a lot of what I'll tell you is familiar, because I get a lot of this from him, but he went through, uh, for, since about 1975 to current date, to, to current data, he updates his data, in the German, the French, and the English. So the vast majority of scholarly journals are in those three languages on these issues. So he went through the English, the German, and the French, and he's come up with these data based on that. So, I mean, this is not like he's just making these numbers up. He's actually got this resource and sourced about how many people say this. In fact, a scholarly journal that is skeptical called Resurrection of Jesus, it's called like Historical Jesus Studies, and it's a skeptical journal. He published for them on the resurrection, and he'll joke about this because he says, they published my article to tell them what they believe. <laughs> because, he's so, you take, because he's summed this up so well. Because he's showing all these things. I mean, schol scholarship has really changed on this stuff because we're so early on some of these dates, and now you've got this. Some atheists will even say, I don't have a naturalistic explanation. They'll be honest with you. They say, I can't explain this away. But I know miracles don't happen, so I know it's something else. <laughs> You see what they're doing? So in other words, their worldview, in this case, it's not because of evidence. There's plenty of evidence. It's because your worldview, the set of glasses that you put on, that's the, pre that's the preventative thing. You're not able to understand how this is possible because you don't believe in God, and God can't exist in that mind. So therefore, we've got to explain this away. And if I can't, I know my worldview is right, so we'll come up with an explanation later. I trust science. Science will explain it later. I mean, that's the attitude. That's the attitude you'll deal with on these sort of skeptical ideas. And so it's my contention that Jesus is raised. I love what Gary Habermas does. I'll use my Bible for this here really quick. He'll say, I'm going to use, he uses his body. He'll go like this. He's like, all right, you believe the Bible is the inspired word of God? Jesus is raised. And then he'll walk over here and he'll be like, you believe that this is, is not inspired, but still mostly reliable historically? Jesus is raised. Then he'll go over here and say, you think this is just like any other Greco-Roman literature? where it's not necessarily reliable, it's not necessarily trustworthy, but it's still Greco-Roman literature, and so it's still an interesting source material. Jesus is still raised. <laughs> See how he is? And he's right, because from a historical standpoint, that's what he says. And he goes, he goes it's a great apologetic method, because it's heads I win, tails you lose. And so it's one of those, I love that about him. And so he does this really, really well, because if you, if you actually think about the data, we have the resurrection of Jesus, and we can be thankful for Paul, because Paul is, all scholars will say, Paul is a world-class philosophical mind. Paul is educated. Paul is a great eyewitness, because he's not going around blowing smoke. He's honest when there's failings. He's honest about his, uh, his travelings. He's humble about it. He talks about his problems. He talks about conflict between other disciples and apostles. Paul is a good eyewitness source. Uh, for those of you who know, um, I think Yvonne Wittrock, when she was here, was going through this, something called Cold Case Christianity with J. Werner Wallace. Mm -hmm. J. Werner Wallace was a homicide detective, and he was exploring the forensic, you know, forensic evidence for the resurrection, and he will tell you right away that Paul is a highly credible eyewitness, that this is not some guy that you have to doubt what he's saying. I mean, he has, he has established <clears throat> his credibility in history, and so we should be thankful for Paul. And you should also be thankful, because when it comes to the world's religions, we as Christians take a back seat to no one on this sort of stuff, the historical claims. There is no other faith in the world that can make claims like this that has this sort of historical data to back them up. Even, I mean, if you were talking about Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism, whatever it is, if you go through all the different world religions, I am just telling you, and you can research it yourselves. Don't just take my word for it. If you want to research it, research it. There is nothing like this out there, outside of Christianity. And so that's why you have people like J. Warner Wallace, homicide detector, detective detector, 
<laughs> Beef handy, I guess. <laughs> We've got four police officers here, but detective who actually comes to faith. He's kind of atheistic, kind of agnostic, kind of on the on the fence there, and comes to faith. And he has this thing called cold case Christianity, and he'll go through some of this data with you also in a different way if you like to approach things that way. And so you can have, again, I say this over and over when I teach this class, but I really emphasize this with my high school kids because we got seniors this year. They're going to be going to college. Some of them are going to be uh, in high school. I mean, it's not high school. In college, like hearing secular professors. You might take a religion course at a, at a state college. And you're going to have to have something to kind of defend yourself with. Otherwise, there's going to be a lot of doubts, right? You're going to be hearing lots of things. Now, some of them will probably just sleep and just pass the class, okay? No matter. <laughs> religion 101, and they sometimes do it to me, too. So it's not going to I'm not just saying. But... <laughs> But for those who are paying attention and the re doing the readings and doing the homework and those sort of things, this sort of data, I really, really try to emphasize it with my students. You can know that Jesus rose from the dead. And you don't have to rely on your guess. You don't have to wish it to be true. Yes, faith is important. Yes, our faith is something that's the substance of things not hoped for. The substance of things not seen, as it says in Hebrews. That's abs absolutely those things are true. However, it's not a blind faith. Okay, It's not blind. It's not this, gi this ginormous leap in the dark. Okay, we actually have a Jesus that rose and died, and it's coming again in actual history, in an actual geographic location, and we have evidence for this eyewitness, best of all kind of witness testimony that goes back to Paul. So I wanted to do this for you really quick about Galatians, because I'm going to get into Galatians a little bit more in Acts 15 again on another topic. But is this helpful to kind of see why I love Paul? And it gives you kind of a really good way of clinging on to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead in history not because we just wish it to be true it's the, actually the best and most we call this occam's razor what's the simplest and best explanation right if you look at this data if you don't preclude the supernatural right away going in if let's just say open mind data and you say it could be supernatural could be natural whatever it is if i look at this data occam's razor sort of thing the simplest explanation is he's raised it explains all the data instantly it all makes sense Everything else is highly, highly convoluted. Just throwing that out there. All right, so back to this council. I want to talk, if, unless there's any questions. Any other questions on this? All right. Power up coffee. Next. <laughs> <laughs> we, had, we had some sick kids this week, so it was just a, a long week. It's Thanksgiving break is a, a needed thing for my family. We're, I think we're finally on the mend, and we're, we're moving forward there. Okay, so now I want to go through this dispute with the Judaizers and then talk about councils. Okay, so this is, again, more data out of Galatians 2. So I'm in Galatians 2 again, okay? When they saw that I had been entrusted, so remember, they added nothing to me, is how I ended there, right? On the contrary, let's see, so then, then it continues to go. On the contrary, this is verse 7, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Paul is taking so much care to say this is all about God. Are you noticing that? Mm -hmm. Like every time there's like a comma or a parenthesis, God did this, God did this, God did this. The same guy who's doing this is also doing this. It's all about God. Paul's very careful to say that all over and over because he's talking to the Galatians and they're going to have these little disputes. Well, I was baptized by this guy. Well, I was baptized by this guy. It's the same gospel, okay? Come off the high horse a little bit, okay? Next, verse 9. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So remember how I said you want to be in another of those conversations? Look at this conversation now. 
So now we have Paul, James, and Peter, but now we've added John. Can you imagine how those conversations, that would have been like the, the, uh, those interview sessions, just the recording session, to have Paul, James, Peter, and John all talking about what the gospel is. And then after hearing what Paul was doing, saying, hey, Holy Spirit's chosen you to do this. Holy Spirit's chosen us to do that. Here's the right hand. Hey, we're friends. Right hand of fellowship, meaning that we're, we're on the same team. Right? That would have been an amazing conversation. I would have loved to hear that. It's one of those fly-on-the-wall moments. Okay? And then, of course, remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Paul is going to take up collections frequently for the church in Jerusalem because it's poor. It's destitute. The Jews were not exactly in the higher echelons of society back then unless they were in the you know the Sanhedrin and they didn't want to believe in Jesus because he was a rabble riser to them so it was mostly the poor in Jerusalem and why but the places in like say Turkey or Greece or Rome there were members even of Caesar's household that were Christians it cuts across all classes all divisions and so somebody from Caesar's household is actually funding the Christians in Jerusalem think of it that way no I don't have evidence specifically that that's how the check bounced or whatever you know but I'm just saying <laughs> that that's the image you should get the image you should get is that these Christians in other areas, these Gentile Christians who aren't even Jewish, actually Paul takes up collections and actually sends them to Jerusalem to look after the Jews, which is fascinating. So at this moment, even though there's contention about how Jewish do they need to be, they're still taking care of each other, which is, which is pretty neat. So Paul opposes Peter. This is what comes next. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, so this, this is fascinating. If you know Peter from the Gospels, you're just going to roll. This is just classic. Okay, this is classic things. Okay, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For certain men came from James. He was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew... How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? <laughs> it's just funny, because you get Paul, who's this kind of really crisp, philosophical, legal mind, and then you got Peter, Mr. Fisherman, just doing his thing. Right? And it's just, it's just you can imagine, this is really easy to see in human terms. And this is why he seems credible, by the way, to, other, to eyewitnesses. Because this is such a credible account. It's not like some mythological thing he's created. People that look at ancient history are like, yeah, I could see that happening. Really, really easily. So then he goes on, right? So he has this little dispute with Peter, and then he says, we, are, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one is justified. Okay, and so it's interesting. And he later says that he's crucified and in Christ, and it's Christ that lives in him, not long, no longer himself. In other words, he's standing on Christ's merits, not on his own merits. And the book of Galatians, I'll have Pastor talk a little bit more about this, but I I'm just want to emphasize historically, if there's like a theme to the book of Galatians, it's hold fast to that gospel that we preach to you, because if you don't, you are condemned. And so it's not about me, it's not about Peter, it's not about Barnabas, it's not about Titus, it's not about any of these leaders, it's Christ alone, right, the, the idea of Christ alone, that's Christ in me, cling to him, cling to that original gospel that was preached by me and these other apostles, because look, they added nothing to my gospel, guys. So why are, you, why are you trying to go backwards? That's the message of Galatians. Don't go backwards. You have the gospel. You don't need, the, you don't need to worry about checking all the boxes. So hold fast. It's a big theme in Galatians. Okay, so this is written again around this time, right before uh, the Acts of Teen Council and right after. Actually, the Galatians would have been right here. About 49, 50 AD will be the book of Galatians. So 
we have this early dispute, how Jewish do they need to be? And Pastor went on this whole thing last week, and he was distracted also by all the stuff going on in the communities. And so um, on this council, I want to talk a little bit about this, this idea. So Pastor did a really good job talking about how in modern context, we still struggle with this issue. That how part of the tribe do you need to be to be a part of the tribe? Right? How discipled do you need to be before you can be baptized? Or how, how, how much of uh, the liturgy do you need to know? Or how much of uh, uh, the Bible do you need to know before you can participate in these sort of things? Those things are always a debate in the church, and he did a really good job describing those things. But I want to emphasize a little bit more, kind of a little bit of a broad feel, because my natural... I didn't come to Lutheranism like Pastor where I was born and raised in the LCMS, and he's kind of got every single battle like memorized, and he's kind of... You know, you know what I'm saying? He just he knows this stuff. I came to Lutheranism because of doctrine and because of history, so my perspective is just different. I have different battles, if that makes sense, than he does in a lot of ways. And so I want to emphasize these councils. So this Acts 15 council, this Jerusalem council that Paul's at, okay, this is called, some people call this the first ecumenical council. And I want to, I want to talk about councils for a second because we become a church of councils because of the example of the apostles and the example of Peter and Paul and all these guys meeting behind the scenes and getting rid of these disputes and coming to a conclusion. Okay, And so we decide that these councils are key. So the Jerusalem Council is somewhere around, I'll just say circa, Okay, so circa 48 AD. And so because we have these councils and because we have these disputes, the church then later in history is going to look back at Acts 15 and say, how can we do it like they did to solve these disputes? Which makes sense. So in the history of the church, you should know this, uh, there are councils and synods. Synod means to come together. There are councils and synods throughout the world, but there are several that are recognized as kind of universal councils that are kind of there. So this, so, and so what we call this, the word, I'm going to write it up here, so forgive me. So ecumenical. This means a universal council. Okay, now, in, Act, in the book of Acts, it's easy to have a, uh, a universal council because most of the apostles are still living in the same place. <laughs> right, they're all there. Peter, James, John, they're all there. Okay, Paul comes back home, right? They all, they all meet. So it's pretty easy to have an ecumenical council because you have apostolic authority right at the council. All the apostles are still there. So it's very easy to see this as a universal council. You've got Barnabas, you've got Titus, all these big church fathers all present here. James is the, is the leader of the Jerusalem church, kind of playing host to this council, right? So it's easy to have an ecumenical council. But as history progresses and as the church expands and crosses cultures and crosses massive amounts of geography, would you agree with me that it would be very hard to have an ecumenical council? Yes. Okay, now, here's the thing. Until Constantine legalizes Christianity in 313 AD, there is no other council. Why? They're constantly off and on being persecuted. Okay, so if you're living in Rome and the church gets persecuted because Nero burns down Rome and blames it on the Christians, kind of hard to show up at a council, wouldn't you say? Okay, when there's persecutions in North Africa because a rival for the throne wants to prove how pious he is to the Roman gods and starts executing Christian noble women to move a point, it's kind of hard to send people to a council. And you can go all around the Mediterranean world, and even as far east as places like the countries of Georgia and Armenia, where Christianity is very ancient, and even maybe even Western India. There's, you know, there's of course a lot of history there with Thomas perhaps going as far as Western India. It's hard to get to a council because everybody's under persecution. And Rome itself, after the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, 
starts to deteriorate. We have a year of we have these like the, the year of the seven emperors, and all these just it's just disastrous. One emperor after another being assassinated or killed or poisoned or whatever it is, and so it is tumultuous. We have civil war, kind of hard to come to a council. So then finally, in 313 AD, when Constantine legalizes Christianity and ensures that there is safe passage, he reunites the Roman Empire. Empire. It's kind of a new golden age, so to speak. Moves the capital of Constantinople. Constantine becomes a Christian, kind of. He takes, it takes a while for him to kind of unlearn his pagan ways. So even though he legalizes it in 313, and even though he kind of comes along and says, well, I want to be a Christian, but I don't want to be baptized yet because... I'm afraid I might do crappy things, and so I want to get baptized right before I die. So you get the idea. He's not exactly, you know, the most theologically astute new believer. That's kind of Constantine, the impression you get from Constantine. Anyways, but he does favor it. He gives Christianity kind of most favored religion status in the empire. He doesn't persecute other beliefs. At this time, Christianity is still probably only 10% of the whole Roman Empire. But he kind of legalizes it, and then there's a dispute over whether or not Jesus is fully God or not. We call this Arianism. Uh, Modern-day Arians in our community would be the Jehovah Witnesses, for example. That uh, Jesus is just a, he's like, he's a demigod, he's a created being, but he's, he's uh, superior to all other beings, but he's still created. He's not fully God. Okay, there was a time that someone was not. It's called Arianism. So Constantine says, hey, church leaders, how do we figure this out? Because this is creating a huge contention, and it's embarrassing me, because I'm favoring you, and you guys are all arguing with each other. <laughs> Okay, and so they call a general ecumenical council. Why? Because they look back to Acts 15 at this Jerusalem council and say, this is how they did it. We should do the same thing. And so how can we make sure that this is ecumenical? And so he makes, he lets all the bishops and all the pastors travel by imperial post. So like riding royal carriages. He makes sure the military keeps all the roads safe. And so he has people from Spain, Italy, Georgia, Egypt, you get the idea? All come to this council, and you guys might know where I'm going with this. The next ecumenical council is 325 AD, and this is the Council of Nicaea. Okay? So the next ecumenical council after the Jerusalem council is the Council of Nicaea, and then the next one after that, because it still doesn't settle it, is going to be Constantinople. And the creed that we say when we say the Nicene Creed comes from these two councils. And so when we speak, speak that creed, I mean, this was a dearly bought thing. Most of the people that came in at this council had been persecuted under the rule of Domitian. Uh, in fact, uh, there's a historian named Eusebius of Caesarea. Eusebius says that when they come to this council, it's as if an army of martyrs descended. Because guys are coming to this council like missing eyes, you know, and they're limping or they have broken arms, or they have burn marks on them, you know, from all the tortures they experience. So they come to this council like an army of martyrs, and they descend upon that, and we actually end up with what we now call, they decide that Jesus is fully God, and that creed, he is of one substance with the Father, begotten, not made, all those sort of things. They settled their dispute, just like they did at 48 AD in the Jerusalem Council, and then it was disseminated. And just like the Jerusalem Council, as you see, after the council... Paul still has to call Peter out. Did you notice that? Even after the council, Paul has to call Peter out. So in the same way, it doesn't work. In fact, you could all argue that what we call Orthodox Christianity looked like it was going to lose after the council. In fact, all these people are being persecuted at this time. And when a guy, if you know a church father named Athanasius, spends months in his daddy's tomb in hiding. 
And he's considered this great confessor of orthodoxy. It wasn't even a guarantee that they'd win until we get new emperor, 381 AD, and we have somebody who actually gathers them again. And we have this council, 381, that confesses the same thing as 325, but then adds and edits the creed to include some things about the Holy Spirit, because there was confusion about that. And so the creed you say, the Nicene Creed, and I, I use text speak, Nicene Creed 2.0 is what we say. And that's what we say in church. Okay, so back, this all goes back. And again, the reason I want to show you these, these all go back to Acts 15, and I'm following through with this example that is given us from the book of Acts. You'll talk to different uh, uh, churches and different organizations. There's actually about seven ecumenical councils. Four in particular are really important. Five and six kind of clarify three and four. Seven is a harder one to explain because it has to do with icons. Um, so it's a little bit trickier to kind of go through, and it's a lot later. But all these, and if you're interested, just because I'm a geek, here you go. Okay. So you've got 431. This one is in Ephesus. Same Ephesus that we have in the New Testament. Okay. And then you have this one. And this is Chalcedon. Okay. These are the four ecumenical councils. These are the ones that Lutherans, Anglicans, Catholics, Orthodox, we all share these. Um, we have common, common costs. Yes? So is this when our... It was labeled a Christian religion. I mean, because Christianity really wasn't ever espoused by the apostles or anywhere through the early, uh, you know, as a religion. It was more following of Christ. So, Right. It depends on how we define that term, right? Because, like, religion can be a tricky thing. Because you'll have people say things like, um, I don't have a religion, I have a relationship. Now, my because I'm me... I'm coy, and I say, so on the census, when the census comes in and it says religion, do you say, it's not a religion, it's a relationship, or do you just say Christian? <laughs> do you get the point I'm making? So some of it's the way we define our terms. We've got to kind of, we've got to think about that. So what do we mean by religion? So if religion, we mean a belief system, well, then they were religious, right? They were in a religion, right? It's just a belief system. But if you mean what we would call institutional church Christianity, then sure, it does take a lot of this time to develop. I mean, this first 300 years, the reason there's, as I said before, you have persecution going on. You're not going to have a real strong institutional church when your bishops are getting killed all the time. Okay? You've got pastors being killed, and the Roman government's kind of knocking you down. Those first 300 years of the church, it's kind of hard to really institutionalize anything. You're just trying to survive. And yet, in the midst of trying to survive, they thrive. Right? The way Tertullian says it is, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Famous quote. These martyrs are being killed, and it's kind of like the hydra. You cut one Christian's head off, and then all of a sudden there's eight more. I mean, that's really kind of how it turned out these first 300 years. And so it's true that you don't have this kind of imperialistic church in the sense that, you know, this guy is the metropolitan archbishop here, this guy is the metropolitan archbishop here, and here's the patriarch of this city and this city, and here's all our canon law and all these other different things. It is true that, that if that's what you mean by Christianity, right, that kind of huge established body of doctrine with an established church, with established creeds, established liturgy, established practice, if you mean established religion, then sure, that's later. That is going to be later into here. But even there, it's tricky because we have letters from a disciple of John. So here I've got the 65 AD. We have some letters down here, about 117, from a guy named Ignatius of Antioch. We have seven of his letters, and he's already talking about bishops that early. He says, let everybody be subject to the bishop. We also have really high communion practice, by the way. He says the, the Eucharist, that's another word, it's Thanksgiving, it's another word for communion, is the medicine of immortality. Something's going on there. That's actually why, we, by, by the way, this guy right here, he's, not, he's a disciple of John, Ignatius of Antioch. He's why I'm a Lutheran, by the way. Just so you know. 
because I was I was a Baptist, went to Liberty University, got to got, I went to seminary, got my master's in theology, so it's my MA degree, so not a full MDiv, so 36 credit master's in theology. I did church history, we did Ignatius of Antioch, Apostolic Fathers, okay, went through those, and I'm thinking through these things, and I'm like, medicine and immortality, what in the world is he talking about? Communion is just a symbol. And then he keeps going, and then he says, those who deny this are perishing in their disputes, and all these, and he just, he's really strong on communion. I was like, all right. Kind of this timeline thing, right? Here we go. Here's Ignatius. Here's John, right? Some of the other disciples and apostles die right in here. And Ignatius is old in 117. So he actually probably knew many of them. He probably knew Peter, probably maybe even knew Paul when he was a young man. But definitely knew Peter, etc., etc. He probably knows more than I do. <laughs> that was kind of my conclusion. And I was just kind of... So I looked around, and so at Ignatius in 117, and so I, I'm, I'm kind of going off on a little tangent here, but he probably does, and since he knows more than me, I got to a little bit of a crisis, and I was kind of like, you know what, I think something, something's going on in communion, because Jesus does say, this is my body, this is my blood. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, repeats the words of institution, where Jesus says, this is my body, and this is my blood. Paul says that when you break the bread and drink, you're participating in the body and blood of Christ, and those who are doing it wrong are di dying. That's, that's what he says. Okay, so I'm like, something's going on. It's not a hard con conclusion. So that's why my famous line is I went in Baptist and came out Luther. That's why. It's because of these things. And I was like, something's going on. So I came out of Liberty University Seminary and said, I'm either a Catholic, Lutheran, Anglican, or Orthodox. Because all four of those traditions teach the real presence of Jesus in Holy Communion. Go for it. Uh, not much. <laughs> um, it was like right at the end. I mean, I, was, I moved, so I finished. I was able to finish it. Um, through distance learning and online at the time, so I was able to finish it that way. And I wrote about it, and we had like discussion boards on Blackboard and stuff like that. For those of you who teach, you know what Blackboard is. Um, I had discussions on that. There was actually one other guy in the class who came from a really, really conservative, like some sort of odd offshoot of Churches of Christ. It was like a really conservative branch, and he was sacramental also. And so he, we actually read Martin Luther's description of the Lord's Supper as source material. And he, not me, was actually defending Luther's writing on the Lord's Supper. And so I was like, this is great. I'm just, just going to sit back and kind of, you know, get my popcorn ready. Just kind of eat, you know, <laughs> watch, this kind of, watch this discussion. So, <laughs> so it was one of those. And then we moved to Pocatello, and the Baptist minister here, because I went there kind of just out of habit, said, hey, you should go up on the hill and check out Pastor Dinger. I think you'll get along. And that's where you know the story where I wrote him like the world's longest informational email. He's, we saved it. He's like... He's, the way he'll describe it is he got this email from me and he said to the other, I think it was Mike Selsley at the time, Mike Selsley was here and he's like, hey, we got a hot one. Come on. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, anyways, it's one of our favorite things. And I said, I hold to the four councils and this is my view on creation and this is my, I mean, I went all on. I gave him like this doctrinal thesis, you know. And then he, he responds back, yeah, we share about 90 something percent of our views. You should come check us out, you know. He's like, come to the early service. We even do chanting there, you know, and he was Pastor Dinger. And sure enough, and I've been here ever since, really, is that kind of how the story worked out. And so, but anyways, if you didn't know that about, about me, for those of you who don't know my story so well, that's where that is. But I'm just telling you that Paul, for me, personally, it's just, it's, it just matters a lot. So I want to kind of close on this with Galatians, and I'll let you go. And I want to go back to this Galatians 3 thing to give you kind of a devotional thought. So let me quote the end of it, because I didn't want to skip it, okay? Um, let's see, verse 19. For, though, for through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live is the flesh in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. 
For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So it's all about Jesus. I mean, that's the message you're going to get from Paul. That's the message that we get in our tradition. That's the message that I say about in communion. It's all about Jesus. And so just think that way as we go into Thanksgiving week and that sort of thing. So I think we're about at the, bolt, the, the deadline here. We're past 1045, so I should probably close this here <clears throat> so people can pick up their kids. Comments, questions on that before we close? All right, let's say the blessing. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen. Hey everyone, with the holidays quickly approaching, we would like to invite you to a number of services that are not on our typical Sundays. We have on Thursday, Thanksgiving Day, we have a service at 10 a.m. So please put the turkey in the oven, as Pastor Dinger says, and then come to church. And then also Wednesdays in December, leading up to Christmas, we have our Advent worship services and programs. We have um, choir nights and Christmas around the world and high school drama and much more to look forward to. So please be checking our website and our Facebook for more details.